Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. So let's... Let's go to our working text, and we've made it to Song of Songs 2.15. We've defined the fox over the last several weeks, and now we're defining the little foxes. Because remember, a beast is a kingdom, but a fox will represent a particular person. It's an archetype, I think is what we call it in literature. You look at this particular person and his characteristics, and that will give you the pattern, the principle in the pattern, so that if you see this person over here exhibiting the same characteristics, then you can always trace it back to here. This one will teach you about this one, and then this one over here might actually teach you about that one too. It goes back and forth. It kind of goes back to the, the hand and the arm of prophecy. The hand, this will come to pass soon. The arm, it'll come to pass again but at a later time, and it might happen multiple times. That's just a really good, simple rule to remember about when you're reading prophecy. The hand, short-term, arm, it'll happen again. I think we're at the end of the arm. I think the, the arm of Adonai, he's about to do it himself because he says there's nobody to stand in the gap. There is not a Moses in this generation. A lot of wannabes, but there's no Moses in this generation. Yeshua's going to do it himself. We can prepare the way. We can help. We can volunteer. But again, you have to be prepared for the consequences of that. Uh, it won't be pleasant. But you know what? If you hear footsteps, you'll endure any distress because you know what the point of it is. So catch the foxes for us, the little foxes. So there's foxes and there's little foxes. That tells you there is a plurality of this prophecy. You will see a fox. Pharaoh's going to be one fox. But you're going to see foxes like Pharaoh throughout history as it pertains to Israel. There's going to be a little fox, and there will be little foxes throughout history that follow that same pattern. And so we're going to define where these foxes and little foxes might appear, because there will be a fox outside the family, like Egypt, even though, you know, in one sense, Egypt, we're told not to oppress an Egyptian because he's our brother. He's outside the family, but he's still kind of part of the family. You've got the plural use of foxes, and then there's a duality, foxes and little foxes. So that's a guiding principle. And if, if we backed up a few verses, it would tell us that this prophecy is going to occur at a time when the figs are ripe. When Yeshua said, from the fig tree, learn the parable. Don't, he didn't say learn the parable of the fig tree. He said, from the fig tree, learn the parable. Right? Also, at the very same time, he says, the vineyard is in bloom. Because the little foxes here are trying to get the vineyards while they're in blossom. This is the time of Passover. Your figs will be ripening, but the, the vineyards will just be blooming. And it's actually at that time that you prune them. You cut them back at that time. So it kind of represents the circumcision of Israel before they went out of Egypt. So they could apply the blood to the doorpost. But this is a time of promise. Because if you'll read in Ezekiel 20, you'll realize how far the, the Hebrews had fallen into idolatry. We tend to kind of good guy, bad guy, like the bad Egyptians and, and the good Hebrews. They had fallen. If you read Ezekiel, they're no better than an Egyptian. The only thing distinguishing them from an Egyptian is a covenant, a promise to their father Abraham. 
they had fallen so far. But in order to put the blood on the doorpost, there had to be a preliminary promise of repentance. I repent of that. I don't want to be an idolater. So this is a ripe fig. That is a fruit of repentance. See, the fruit signifies the repentance that has taken place. We call it, what does it call it in King James? Fruits, meat for repentance, which always messed me up because it made me think of meat and fruit. But <laughs> proper for repentance. But the vineyard's only blossoming. It's new. It's tender. Maybe a harsh wind could blow the flowers off. And so it said it's most vulnerable stage. Folks, for people who are newly saved, they are at their most vulnerable stage. Because the little foxes, is, they're like, hmm, I can get that. Because they don't know anything yet. They repented, but really they don't know of what. They know they're a sinner, but it's very vague. Remember when you kind of answered the, when the preacher said, does anybody want to be saved? Or I was at vacation Bible school. I didn't understand everything that teacher was telling me. I just had this vague sense that I've done bad things, and Jesus never did anything but good things, and so he can save me, and I would really like that. But I didn't really know what all the bad things were. I didn't even understand most of the words of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I didn't know what adultery was. So what was I doing? Was I repenting of adultery too that I'd never committed and didn't even understand the word? I'm promising. When I go up front and say, I want Jesus to save me, all right, now I'm a, a tender blossom, and I'm vulnerable because as I'm growing up, I need to learn the rest of the commandments. I have a vague idea. Yes, Yeshua saved me. Now I'm promising the blossom in me promises I will walk in repentance. I will continue in repentance. As you reveal yourself to me, as you take me to Mount Sinai, teach me the Ten Commandments. As you keep me in the wilderness and you teach me 613 commandments, I agree as necessary I will bring forth the fruits of repentance. As I learn what I am doing wrong, it's hard to repent of something you don't even know you're doing or haven't done yet. So you see the maturity process that are represented by a fig, a ripe fig, but then just a grape in blossom. There's a big difference in the maturity level. But it's a promise. I will do it. I will walk with you. I will walk in faith. And so you have to have both of those. The little foxes are looking for when you were new. The same way the little foxes were looking for you right after you were saved, when you come into the Torah, the little foxes are looking for you then too because now you're another little blossom in bloom. You haven't understood 613 commandments yet, and we still don't understand 613 commandments yet, no matter what we might think. We're walking in it. We're walking to Sinai. We're saying, we will do and we will hear. Well, you know what? They still hadn't heard everything. But you know what? More fruits of repentance. You keep teaching us, Moses, and we'll keep repenting. We'll keep changing. We'll keep transforming until at Sukkot, now we are clusters of ripe grapes. We are fit to be brought in as first fruits. We are fit to be brought in as tithes to the temple. We are actually realizing what these feasts are all about because now we are becoming those fruits proper for repentance. And not only that, we are becoming those trees that are for the healing of the nations. The whole tree is going to be good. Not just a fruit, the entire tree down to its leaves. It's going to be good. So the, the little foxes, they want to try to nip us off when we're new at something. And there just happens to be a snare out there called the internet. And it can be a good thing, 
and it can be a bad thing. I think it's caused probably more chaos than order in the congregations because the maturity's not there yet. And so at the same time, you're using it to find out, what do I need to do to repent? Let me understand this commandment. At the very same time, you're also being seduced away by things that uh, are we would call winds of doctrine, which is what the ships are also associated with. As we're talking about when we get to, to the shipwrecks, how do people get shipwrecked? They start following every wind of doctrine. You know, a good sailor back in those days knew the seasons and the currents. And so, you know, when they're out on the ship in the middle of the winter and they're shipwrecked, nobody's really surprised. You know, they're just out there in the water swimming, (laughs) hoping they can find a log to hold on to. Well, if you don't have to be shipwrecked, why? Why do it? Well, you're new. You don't know yet. You don't trust people. You know, you, you feel like you've been to sea. Well, who can I trust? I can't trust anybody. Well, good luck. I don't think even luck's going to help you there. You know, you need to start thinking wisely. So the fox is Pharaoh. Remember, he's dealing with the Hebrews. He thinks wisely. He's cunning. All he's trying to do is protect his own country. If you'll notice, he's not worried about worldwide conquest. He wants to protect what is his from foreign armies. He thinks the Hebrews are going to help a foreign army because they have a reputation. Think of Shimon and Levi. (laughs) They took on a whole city. They had a little help, but... Still, right? Abraham, defeating the the kings. That's pretty serious warrior heritage there. You can see why Pharaoh would be worried. But see, it's it's consolidation and keeping what... It's a defensive posture. Even though we perceive him as aggressive against the Hebrews, it's actually a defensive posture. I don't want to lose what I got. So I'm a builder. Wasn't Pharaoh a builder? And he put him to work building his storage cities. He thinks he's wise. He's an observer. So he doesn't go after him, you know, with archers and spearmen. It's very gradual how he incorporates them. And also remember, it's in the Midrash maybe, where Pharaoh had astrologers who actually predicted to him that there would be a deliverer born among the Hebrew boys. And so he goes after the baby boys on the birthing stools, wants to throw them in the Nile. Well, how did he know, since there wasn't that much mixing and mingling of the cultures, how did Pharaoh know that the women were pregnant? How did he know to go after them? Well, they say that the, the soldiers, especially who drowned in the Reed Sea, they would send their school children into the Hebrew women's bathhouses to observe them. And if you send those little girls in there, the little school children, then they know they're pregnant and about how far along. And that way the The officials could come in at about the time they would be due, and they could observe them more carefully so that they could harvest those baby boys. So another characteristic of the fox is he puts people under surveillance. He gathers data. Starting to ring a bell now? This was what Ahab was known for. He always had people out there checking on Elijah, (laughs) right? But who was the biggest surveillance artist of them all. Do you remember? We tend to dissociate from it because it's associated with jingle bells, but Herod the Great, he had informants everywhere. How did he know Yeshua was born? Well, his magi. (laughs) How did the people know the magi were in town? Because he had informants on every corner, just like Pharaoh. And so they bring him in to to Herod, and Herod asks him questions. He says, okay, I'll harvest the baby boys. I'll get rid of that deliverer. You know, he even killed his first two sons. 
He was that serious. So a pattern of the fox, Pharaoh, that pattern will also apply to Ahab and Jezebel, but the big fox and the little fox. And then you've got Herod, the great, who is going to be a big fox. And then you've got his son, Herod Antipas, who was alive in the time of Yeshua. His father, Herod the Great, did most of the building on the the temple. He was a builder like Pharaoh. He was known far and wide for his building projects, also known far and wide for his surveillance program. (laughs) He, He needed that data to secure his position as the Tetrarch of Rome. I think that's what they were called. And so when Yeshua says, you go tell that fox, He's like, Yeshua, he's after you. He's like, you go tell that fox. And anybody who heard that knew exactly what Yeshua was saying. You go tell Ahab. He knows who he is. He knows what his job is. He's got his informants out there. They're watching everything Yeshua does. They're watching everything John the Baptist does. And so his wife Herodias, who, by the way, was his niece, just as incestuous (laughs) as another particular family in Scripture. You've got Herod and Herodias. You know what their names mean? To watch or observe. You know what a fox does? The name of a fox? To watch and observe. So Pharaoh was watching, observing the Hebrews in order to take advantage, to try to to harvest out this deliverer. So when a nation is under intense surveillance, when they want to know everything about you, down to when your babies are born, then the fox is watching. And the little foxes are waiting to dart in there when those Tender blossoms are the most vulnerable. You'll look for surveillance. You'll look for building projects. You'll look for a slave trade. Human souls is the way Revelation words it. This is human souls. Buying and selling human souls, which is what we do with commercials. Not just human trafficking that is rampant right now, but the ads you're watching are having to listen to. If you want to use any platform, they're pushing ads on you. That is part of this trade. When you indoctrinate school children against adults, you're not just producing the next generation, you're also sabotaging the generation of adults. Do we have school children being indoctrinated today? And do they reflect biblical morals when they're being indoctrinated? Do they perceive adults as being bumbling idiots? And a consolidation of control. That's another characteristic of the foxes. They will try to consolidate. And I would say today, they don't keep anything secret anymore. They tell you exactly what they're doing. Now, there's another part of the the fox prophecy I wanted to add in here because I think it's significant as it pertains to the beast kingdoms. If we get into a, well, is it this or is it this or this, we're going to mess up. Because scripture is designed to give you multiple pictures simultaneously. The foxes, the little foxes, could have once been big foxes. And this comes with Obadiah 1-2. Now remember, Obadiah was contemporaneous to Ahab. That's important to know, because Ahab was a fox, and Jezebel was a little fox. And Ahab was a fox, and Ahab's son Ahaziah, remember where it says, seize the foxes? That's where Ahaziah's name comes from, Ahaz. It means to seize. Ahaziah, his son, was a little fox, and he's going to try to build some ships. Ain't going to work. They're going to get sunk. When the Father does not want us making covenants and alliances with unrighteous people, with the foxes and the little foxes, he will sink our ships, ask Jonah. If he wants your ship sunk with everything you have on it, he will sink it in order to preserve your soul. 
the rabbis are going to identify the fox with Edom. Why Edom? Because Obadiah prophesies he will become little among the nations. It goes back to Genesis 27. Remember the the interaction here where the the blessing is in question and Isaac's going to bless Esau. Rebekah sets it up where instead he blesses Jacob. It says that Isaac summoned Esau, his great or gadol, son. And then it says Rebekah took the garments of her great or gadol son. It'll usually translate it like older, older son. So it's suggesting here that in terms of the fox and the little fox, often there's going to be a familial relationship like Ahab and his son Ahaziah, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, is, it means like in the place of the father. The little fox is going to be like the big fox. Ahaziah is going to, we're going to, I'll show you the scriptures here. It'll say he walked in all the ways of his father Ahab. Everything Ahab did, his son did. The fox and the little fox. And then also Jezebel. Jezebel is going to be a little fox to Ahab. So when we think of Jezebel as being a manipulator, she's the little manipulator. The big one is Ahab. This is where they're getting the idea of the foxes as being connected by family. Ultimately, Edom grows so strong that at the end of days, Isaiah 34, 6 says, the Holy One himself is going to have to slaughter Edom. It's not going to be a human being. That's perfectly consistent because Adonai says, I looked and there was nobody who could help me. I'll do it for myself. My own right arm is going to do this. And so it says, for Adonai is making a sacrifice at Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The idea being, Edom is not too big to slaughter. It just takes somebody bigger to slaughter him. We've got candidates here with this pattern. We've got the fox. We've got the little fox. They can be brothers. They can be husband and wife. They can be father and son. But it is interesting that they're identifying Edom as one of the foxes because it's Obadiah that prophesies during the reign of Ahab. And so he's the one making the connection between being made little with Edom. Now, eventually, Edom became known as the beast kingdom called Rome. But then we know that Rome, as it began to kind of spread out into feet and toes, it lost its single kingdom identity, but its systems, which went back to Greece, which went back to Persia, Medea, which went back to Babylon, which went back to Egypt, the serpent, that there would be systems kept in place. We even have senators, right? Look at how much of even our government nomenclature is based on the Roman political system, right? Same words. But we saw how with the feet that it goes into this iron and clay that's mingled and eventually ends up in 10 toes. But the fourth beast, it didn't have a specific identity. We've got the lion, we've got the bear, we've got the leopard, but it gets down into the iron legs and feet of Rome and all of a sudden it just calls it a great terrible monster. And this great terrible monster apparently is just a conglomerate of the three kingdoms that went before it. It's its own thing because it's a conglomeration. Everything has been passed down to it. And of course, we know Egypt uh, was the water-based dragon. Remember, he controls the waterways. When, you, when, he's, when I take you into the land flowing with milk and honey, you're not going to deal with me the way that the people of Egypt dealt with Pharaoh. Because back there, you just move things with your foot. And you can control the waterways. He says, there you're going to depend on me. You don't control my waterways. He controls the waterways. He controls your blessing and he controls your lack. And we can point fingers at anybody we want to. 
But ultimately, if we're experiencing a plague, who do we need to pray to? Pharaoh or the Holy One who controls our waterways? He says, I want you to depend on me. So we can just presume at this point Egypt's influence or the serpent's influence among the beast kingdoms. So Deuteronomy 11.10, this is the text I keep referring to. It says, for the land into which you were entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came. There's a reason he's saying this. He doesn't have to. It's obvious, but he needs to say it so we understand. Where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. Now, the word there for vegetable garden, file this away, is gan, which is garden, hayirak, which is green, green garden. You're going to grow your vegetable garden by controlling the waterways with your foot. What's fresh for you? It's a green garden. It's fresh things, lettuces and beets and, you know, the crispy stuff we all like, radishes. That's your green garden. The problem with the green garden is if it's not fairly close It's not green when you eat it. But see, if we control the waterways and we control commerce, then we can get lettuce from California in a day. And how convenient and how fresh and how green. But who controls that system? That's the question. We've talked about the vulnerability that the time of the blossoms when you're newly saved, and I, I'm adding to that, don't write it down, but I think when you newly come to Torah, I think you enter into a new stage of vulnerability because the little foxes are going to seize any opportunity. He knows his time is short when he sees you turning to the feasts. He knows that he's about to be cut off, at least in your life. So let's go to Revelation 2.20. He says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This is where we understand. If you say, okay, if the footsteps of Messiah are coming, and even if they aren't, even if this is not the generation, doesn't matter. It's your time and your generation. This is it for you. You're not going to get another chance. I can tell you that. Now or never. Not the time to play. Not the time to say, well, let me go do this, and then I'll repent before I die or before Yeshua comes. No, you don't know that. Quit thinking like that. It's now or never. He's telling us that sexual immorality, that's how we find idolatry in our day. It's through sexual immorality. That's how we eat things sacrificed to idols. If you were feasting your eyes on things on the internet that are not fit for righteous eyes, then you have committed idolatry. Yeshua said, if you've thought about it, if you've entertained the idea, then you've done it. You've planted a seed that will grow. And you need to stop now more than ever. If there's ads that come up when you're trying to watch something, you can't always stop them. I found that out just using YouTube. Five minutes before you can hit the button and get away from it. Point that out to your children. The seduction is coming through the commercials. And it used to be that it was, you know, we had programs that were fairly wholesome. And the ads were going to be fair. I mean, you're going to buy TV dinners and Pringles newfangled potato chips and And we could all sing the the ad jingles. Well, the last thing you would ever want to do today is sing an ad jingle because of the immorality. See, an ad tells you this is what's normal. You knew when you looked at the program, it may not be normal. It might be hobbits or something. The ad kind of told us what the average household consumed, did, wore. I would never wear those clothes, right? I would never use that product. I would never go in that place. 
And so the ads are no longer safe. They are introducing into your eyes repeatedly. And it might be something, uh, I think the example I used before was perfume. Well, you think perfume, shouldn't that be fairly innocuous? I mean, what's the harm in a perfume commercial? Well, when they're not dressed, there's harm. They're trying to sell sexy. Okay, it's, you're not buying the perfume so you'll smell good. You're buying now the perfume so that you will attract someone into an illicit relationship because you know you're married. Hmm, or you want to be like that person. And all of a sudden, you think you can turn the clock back 30 years. You can't. And so we're feasting our eyes and our ears on things that should never go in. You're, take, you're eating it. It's going inside of you, and it's becoming part of who you are. So she says, the time has come to repent. This is Thyatira. This is the fourth assembly. This is a time of Shavuot. This is the time of the encountering of the Torah. The first ripe figs, your salvation should be a done deal. He's led you into the wilderness. You were a blossom. Now you should be showing like you're a grape. You should be on a little green cluster at least. Early ripening grapes could come in at Shavuot, but they'll ripen from Shavuot to Sukkot in Israel. And Israel is always the plumb line. So by Shavuot, when you say, we will do and we will hear, there's actually little grapes there that said, yeah, I'm going to mature into a full grape. And you know what? I'll be ready for the temple by the time Sukkot comes around. You know what? I'll be eligible for a Kiddush cup. Think of when you drink the cup on a Rev Shabbat or a high Sabbath, you're drinking wine, right? Or grape juice. Do you see what the promise is when you do that? Not just of sanctification. You are saying, I promised you back at Passover, I would mature. And I would continue on that path until Sukkot. And now I present myself to you with a cup of sanctification. And you share that cup as a body. You're a cluster now. You're not just one little grape, although a grape from Eshkol probably (laughs) would have been sufficient for a community. But you're presenting yourself. Now you are the vineyard Israel. Israel is the vineyard. Israel is the fig tree. So he says, now the time has come to repent. Now I'm about to tell you very specifically what you're doing wrong. And if you're committing sexual immorality at Shavuot, it's bad news. Because now he says, I will throw her onto a bed of sickness, those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. You only thought it was bad until you reach this point. He says, unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with plague, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. If anyone ever told you that your deeds were unimportant as a believer, they lied. That's Jezebel. Jezebel is working under an Ahab, and he wants your vineyard. She's the agent, but Ahab wants your vineyards. Sexual immorality at this point, if these are the footsteps of Messiah we hear approaching, sexual immorality is not to be tolerated. It starts with yourself. If there's things in your life, if there's movies in your life, television programs in your life, I mean, we're having to work on this because things that used to be okay, it's like they write them in such a way that like there's a drop-off point and then you can't watch that anymore. It's, you're seduced into it and then you're like so invested in the story like, I don't know what's going to happen here, but it doesn't matter. It's emptiness anyway. So it goes hand in hand with idolatry. No, don't go eat at the restaurant with the Buddha in there. Don't do that either. But that's just too easy. The hard part is maintaining yourself because the the characteristic of the 144,000 is their purity. Yeah, they've not been defied by idols. They're They're not violating the word. 
you know, at least purposely. I'm sure we're all violating unwittingly. That's why there's a sacrifice for that. Eventually, we will understand that. But in terms of what you know to do, do it. What you know you shouldn't be doing, don't do that anymore. Now's not the time. Never was a good time, but more than ever. Just like with the golden calf at Sinai. That was not the time, guys. No, you just said. But what happened? The little fox got the tender grapes. He might have missed the blossom, but he got the little tender grape. Then the Midianite women, okay, more idolatry, more sexual immorality. Same way they rose up to play with the golden calf day, that went along with the Midianite idolatry. Sexual immorality will follow. That's just what's happening. We have to admit it because that's what the Bible says. So Ahab, his attempt, again, was to spoil the vineyard. He's a fox. 1 Kings 21.1. It says, now it came about after these things, and when it says after these things, it's not usually good. I don't know if you've ever noticed that phrase in Scripture, but like, let your ears perk up when you see that phrase, after these things. It came about after these things that Navot, which means fruits, the Jezreelite had a vineyard. Okay, so we know the vineyard represents Israel, which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab. Ahab was known as a great builder, by the way. If we keep reading the text, it'll go on and tell you how much, like, it says, you know, he just built so much stuff, but we're not going to go into it. It was so much. Beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria, Ahab spoke to Nabot, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Gan Yurak a green vegetable garden. And why? Because it's close beside my house. He is a farm-to-table guy, right? Imagine how much better it would have been to have his green garden there beside the palace rather than having to bring it in by wagon or mule or whatever he was using. His lettuce would be wilted. It wouldn't be fresh. It wouldn't be crispy. It wouldn't be beautiful. He says, give me this. He says, I'll give you a better vineyard than than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. But Navot said to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You see, Navot understood the vineyard. He understood the inheritance of the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He understood the promise of resurrection. He understood what Ahab really wanted. Was it a green garden or was it something else? Remember the foot And the green gardens, if I can control the commercial waterways, if I can control commerce, then I can control lots of people. I give them what they want, and then they give me what I want. It's a fox-wise mentality. But Navot understood the value of the vineyard. He says, I can't sell this. Ahab wants it because it's close. And this is where we, we could go off on a path, you know, where the idolatry of Israel and Judah, repeatedly it will say, on the mountains, on every hill, under every green tree. Well, you know what? There's nowhere you can go in Israel where you won't find a mountain, a hill, or a green tree. In other words, they're worshiping in places of convenience. They only want worship that is convenient for them. People who will fly to Hong Kong to do a business deal won't drive three blocks to church. You see a problem with that? And so it's a matter of priorities. It's convenient. And and in fact, not all of this was foreign idols. Some of it was simply violating what he said. I want you to come up to Jerusalem to worship me, to bring your sacrifices. Instead of going to Jerusalem, they would sacrifice under these green trees. 
And this is why there were certain kings that otherwise were righteous, but they wouldn't stamp out this particular form of idolatry because they said, if we stamp this out, we'll completely disconnect them from yod heh And so they kind of had to compromise, or they felt they had to compromise in that respect because they said, we wipe that out, they're gone because they're only people of convenience. And so we can see the pressure upon the body of Messiah today. What is being demanded of the system is convenience. If you inconvenience me, I won't come, I won't tithe, I'll stay home and I'll watch it on the internet. Now, some people don't have a choice. We're not talking to them. But there are people who have a community available who have a choice. And we also have a community available and we have a choice in terms of understanding that Jerusalem and the feasts of Scripture are those appointed times and the appointed place. And everything we should do in our place of exile should be preparation for returning to that place or we are not prepared to return to that place. If we are worshipers of convenience, we are not ready to go. And I suspect she'll be one of those trees she saw in her vision. It's going to take some work. You know, you're going to have to tap down to see if there's a little bit of root left in there when, when the third is burned up. You don't want to be one of those third. So worship of convenience is also part of idolatry. Jeroboam, he didn't really change the name of God. He just changed the place and the time and made it more convenient, which is what Ahab wants. So we have to be careful when someone offers us something that's juicier, sweeter, crisper, greener, brighter. When somebody's offering you the most convenient thing that's just what you want, beware. And even today, of course, we know what Jezebel did. She went in there. She had Navot murdered for his vineyard and gave it to Ahab. Even today, it's the inheritance of the fathers was what Avot mentioned. We have a heritage, guys. We have a heritage in the land. We shouldn't be looking for convenience at this point. We should probably be saying, if it's too convenient, I'm suspicious of it. Because even today, the secular government of Israel is destroying vineyards in Samaria and Judea. Today. Why are they doing this? Pressure from outside that tells them and dictates to them how to carry on their internal affairs and convinces them they need to destroy their own vineyards, which makes them foxes and little foxes. They're trying to destroy the inheritance of the fathers in order to forge these political alliances and protect their commercial investments. They trust the United States. They trust Great Britain. They trust, you name it, more than they trust themselves and their relationship within that covenant. And the one who said, I will take care of you, just don't forget the inheritance of your fathers. They've got settlers who do believe in the covenant of their fathers, like Navot. And it doesn't matter how many times the bulldozer raises down their vineyards, they're going to be, they're going to pop back up somewhere until the little foxes are gone. And if you don't know that's going on, it's going on. But Ahab did the same thing King Solomon did. I don't know if you realize this. King Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. What does this do? It opens up trade alliances. It opens up technology. I don't know how much you know about the technology of bronze, but the Egyptians from ancient times have had either control or influence on the copper mines that are in the south of Israel around, well, they're in Edom. They're in Timnah. Timnah is a descendant. They're in that area. They had the technology to produce superior military weapons. They needed the copper from down there, and then, of course, they would have to have the iron to infuse with it. But see, if you had the technology, you always had the superior weapons, which meant you could defend yourself or you could attack in war. 
What does Solomon do? He says, I have the copper now, but Egypt has the technology. Let's make a marriage. Be careful what technologies you marry. Be careful what's on your phone. Be careful what's on your laptop. There, there might be a compromise involved on what page did you say? Page 599 of the user agreement. <laughs> that you, you really didn't want that. You didn't want to make that covenant with them. But see, with the, the spread of these economic transactions, controlling the waterways, commercial transactions, with the spread of this is also the spread of apostasy. Now idolatry comes back into the land under King Solomon. Ahab, idolatry proliferates under Ahab because he marries a Sidonian princess who, with all the commercial empire of the Phoenicians, they were the seafarers of the ancient times. They controlled the trade. If you wanted to be in trade, you had to be in treaty with them. Ahab wants a commercial agreement. He marries a Sidonian princess. She brings in the priests of Baal. We have the showdown with Elijah on Mount Carmel. You'll hear that story again later. You'll hear that story with Herod the Great and Herod Antipas. Now it's changed. Now the other fox, Edom, Herod was an Edomian king. So what's happening here? The great fox, Herod the Great, remember the great son, Esau? We've got Herod the Great. They were converts to Judaism, but nominally. And so he had a Jewish wife called Mariamne. And he ends up murdering her and murdering his first two sons. But then he starts intermarrying his children. So it's just one big incestuous conglomerate. Uh, before she married Herod Antipas, Herodias was married to her other uncle. Well, if you've ever read the genealogy of Esau, there's so much incest in it. It's being handed down. But he met her conveniently. Remember, Ahab, I see this vineyard. It's convenient. It's close to my palace. Well, what happens? Herod visits his brother, the other Herod, also called Philip, and he sees his brother's wife and says, hey, I think I could consolidate power with her help because they were always fighting amongst one another, the Herods, for power. And so under Herodias' influence, we lose John the Baptist's head. Jezebel murders Navot because Ahab wants the vineyard. Who is the vineyard? What's going on here? Well, Psalm 128 just clears it up. 128.3 says, Your wife, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants round about your table. What did Ahab want? He wanted his neighbor's wife. That's what the vineyard represents. You see the sexual, sexual immorality and the idolatry go hand in hand. When you covet someone's vineyard, you covet his wife. And Jezebel's helping, that's the incredible part. It was definitely a commercial-driven marriage. You get the princess of Sidon, and she gets to bring all her priests of Baal. Yeah, you, you buy this product, and the ad that goes with it is going to try to sell you on some agenda of the priests of Baal that goes with it. Remember, it's Luke 13, 32, where Yeshua calls Herod Antipas, the, the, he's the little fox, but Antipas means in place of the father. So he's like Herod the Great. Herod the Great, Great is the one who murdered the baby boys, just like Pharaoh. He says Herod Antipas is the little fox behaving just like his father, Herod the Great. And again, known for an extensive network of informants, a great builder, if you've ever 
gone to Israel, you've probably seen several things that he's built still known for. And the Herods, the Herodian dynasty grew rich through this commercial activity because of where Israel is an intersection for commercial activities. But again, they were known for murdering their own family. Of course, John the Baptist does Herod Antipas murder John the Baptist? Does Herodias murder John the Baptist? Or does Salome murder John the Baptist? Yeah. Whoever drew the sword, we don't even get the name. But we do know these names because we have a fox and we have a little fox. And then the little fox has littler foxes (laughs) in the family. But you notice the parallel that Ahab has a soft spot for Elijah. Have you ever noticed that in the text? He's curious about Elijah. But Herod had a soft spot for John the Baptist. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist. He had to be taught to kill John the Baptist. Herod actually admired him. What is he preaching? Repentance. Bring forth the fruits proper for repentance. And again, what does their name mean? Herodias. It's the feminine form of Herod, to monitor or to watch over. When you're in an age of being monitored and watched over, you know the fox is among us. It's part of the family. It's close enough. You may not be aware of how closely the fox is observing. He's very cunning. Again, it goes back to the Gospels. Herod the Great, seeking after Yeshua's life in the Gospels. Is there a holiday? that we associate with Matthew 2, verses 1 through 16. Matthew 2. Where is he who is born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Do you see how the fox works? It's still about the feast, guys. We have a feast here that's being referred to in the prophecy that this is part, I believe, of how they know to come. Not just looking at the stars. They know the times represented by the stars. So they're coming to seek the king at the fall feast, which has somehow morphed into jingle bells all the way. (laughs) The fox knows. But Ahab was a chaz in Hebrew, which is the same word as sees the foxes. So that tells us he's a little fox, and Yah is going to seize him. Something is about to happen. He's going to be seized for judgment. But watch how the big fox, little fox paradigm works and contrast it. It says, Ahab lay down with his fathers, and in his place, Ahaziah became king in his place. That's what Antipas means, in the place of. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, Ahab and Jezebel. See, mom, you don't get away with it, right? If, you're, if your daughter or son is righteous, they will not just note the father, They will also note the mother's influence. The mother definitely had influence with Ahaziah. It did with Jehoshaphat, too, in a good way. It says, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in fact, Jeroboam, Ahab, and uh, Manasseh are said to be the three kings of Israel that were unredeemable, that they were so wicked, they would never repent. They would remain in Sheol. He walked in the way of Jeroboam, who set up the alternate altars, the alternate times, the worship of convenience, 
the son of Nevat, who misled Israel into sin. So he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. Big fox, little fox, Ahaziah. But contrast it with Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. Keep your feet, O Judah. He was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. And his, father, his mother's name was Azuba, this daughter of Shilhi. She's going to get credit here. It doesn't even name Jezebel, but it's going to name Jehoshaphat's mother. He walked in the way of his father Asa and did not deviate from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. So both of these passages, they're, they're parallel. It's showing you the influence of a wicked father and mother upon Achaziah, but it's also showing you the influence of a righteous father, Asa, and a righteous mother, Azuva, on Jehoshaphat. Parents, you can still influence your children, and they can walk in all your ways. Don't give up. I know sometimes it seems like they're taking alternate paths. Never give up. You don't quit praying. Of course, if you know the story, you know that Ahab duped Jehoshaphat into dressing up in his kingly robes in the battle against Aram. And Ahab says, and I'll just, you know, dress like an ordinary person. He's thinking Jehoshaphat's going to get killed. And it ends up just the opposite. He gets caught in his own net. He gets killed by an arrow. And it says Jehoshaphat cried out. And the rabbis believe he cried out in repentance because he realized he had aligned himself with a wicked king. And he never should have done that. And he had a clue when Ahab brings in all these priests of Baal, these false prophets. And he says, isn't there a real prophet here? <laughs> he's got Elijah, he's got Obadiah, and all of a sudden Ahab never heard of him. When you have righteous prophets and you pretend like you don't know who they are, that's a clue. So there's a, a passage here. I want you to read 2 Kings, the whole chapter 1. And I'm not going to read it all. It's, it's too long. But I'm just going to give you the highlight so you remember the story. Remember, it's Ahab has died. He's been killed by an arrow in the battle. Now his son Ahaziah has succeeded him. And Ahaziah, it says, fell through the lattice. And so he was sick. He was put onto a sick bed. Does that sound familiar? Thyatira, I'm going to throw your children onto a sick bed. If you're a fox, I'm going to do it to the little foxes because they're listening to your teaching. They're walking in your ways. And so Elijah meets the messenger. He sends and inquires of a foreign god, am I going to get better? He's got Obadiah, he's got Elijah, and he's going to send to a foreign god. And so Elijah intercepts the messengers and he says, is there no god in Israel? Is there no prophet in Israel that you could consult? He's got to go to this, this pagan god? And so they go back and they tell Ahaziah what he said, and they, he asked some questions like, did he look like this? Did he look like, no, he, oh, that's Elijah. Yeah, that's Elijah. So he sends a captain with 50 men, go kill Elijah, or bring him to me to kill him. And of course, they go up to the hill, Elijah's sitting up there on the hill, just waiting, and the captain just pops off, like, come down from there. And Elijah calls down fire, and he's a crispy critter. And so he sends another captain with 50, and he's the same way. You come down from there right now. You know how you'll try to fake it <laughs> until you make it? And he's like, I'm going to act brave. And like, nope, you're a crispy critter too. Okay, 100 men gone, burned up. The third captain of 50 walks up, and he's like, Elijah, <laughs> sir, <laughs> please, could we have a word? <laughs> Very humble. 
and Elijah's told he won't harm you. Go with him. So he goes, uh, Elijah goes with this captain and, and has the, he's like, you're not going to get better. You're going to die because you're the little fox, basically. You've walked in all the ways of your father. You're not going to get better. If we don't repent of the ways of the fox, we're not going to get better. Now's the time. And so it made me think of the two witnesses in Revelation calling down fire. If anybody wants to harm them, that was why Elijah did. Those captains were about to harm him. And it was only when the third captain came, he says, he won't harm you. You'll be okay. Go with him. But the ones who intended harm to Elijah were killed with fire. This is what happens to happen during the footsteps of Messiah when the two witnesses are witnessing, when they are testifying. If anybody wants to harm them, they have to be killed with fire. And why is this important? Well, we have the story of Ahab. We have the story of Ahaziah and Elijah. We have the story of Pharaoh. We have the story of the Herodian dynasty in the time of Yeshua and John the Baptist. If we will go back and read those stories carefully, then we will have a better idea of what to expect so there won't be two witnesses who maybe not will not be those two witnesses. Because there will be signs and there will be wonders. And they might mimic what the two witnesses are doing. You have to know the word. It's not the time to be a blossom on the grapevine. Yeshua says, woe to those who are nursing in that day. You better not be a nursing baby because you're going to have a hard road to walk. It's not going to be easy, but you can be encouraged because if you have the words, you have the pattern. There's no need to be deceived. We still have feast celebration problems. If, if this is the whole point to straighten up this problem, we got work to do. We have to be more open about our feasts, guys. There's people who just don't know because they don't know. Some people are wicked. I would say that's a very small number. I would say the biggest number are just deceived or don't care. They're not in enough discomfort at this point to care. They're about to get real uncomfortable, and we're going to get uncomfortable with them. Don't expect to be treated differently at first. The monitoring is the sign of the times. It's the sign of the fox. And it is about commercial activity. This is why Ahab married Jezebel, to access the commercial trade. He wanted to consolidate that power. What's going on right now with the internet? And I'm going to say it, Amazon and Google and Adobe stock and all these big things that most of us tap into at some point to conduct our business and our employment. They're getting bigger and bigger because they're gobbling up anything smaller that has a good idea. And they'll invite you, oh, yeah, you're trying to log in here. Just use your Google ID. Go ahead. Oh, and by the way, let's up your security level. Tell me more about yourself. They're harvesting all this data. Don't be afraid of that. You, it's prophesied. There will be an era of the fox. You will be under surveillance. And Micah says they will weave it all together. Well, they're openly doing it. They're not hiding it, just like Michael, Micah said. He says they'll declare it. This is what we're doing. But their plans will fail if you are walking in the ways of the Holy One and he does not want them to see what you're doing, who you are, where you live, and what you say. They'll just be a blank spot. All right, so let's finish up with this. The shipwrecks. These odd shipwrecks in Revelation. A third of the ships are destroyed. I've always thought that was odd. Like, why a third? There's some traditional literature back there about destruction in thirds. In uh, Second Chronicles... You've read this story before. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 35. Remember, Jehoshaphat called out. He cried out because they say he repented of making covenant with Ahab. He shouldn't have. But this describes the 
alliance that he tried to make with Ahaziah, the little fox. He knew he shouldn't have allied himself with the big fox, and then he turns right around and tries to do something with the little fox, Ahaziah. It says, after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in so doing. So he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Etzion Gever. And you see the, the advantage of that because the northern kingdom, Israel, it has access to the Mediterranean ports. Plus, remember, Ahab has married in to the Sidonian city-state, the kingdom. So he has access to all commercial shipping in the Mediterranean and beyond, even up into Europe, most likely. You can see how the, the commercial activity He's not satisfied with just controlling this over here. He wants access to the ports and the shipping down here. It would give him worldwide shipping rights. He could control the waterways. And what does the foot do? It controls the waterways. But it says, Then Eliezer, the son of Dodavahu of Maresha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were wrecked and could not go to Tarshish. So you see, when, when you see Jezebel in Revelation, you're looking at an archetype. And as you just keep going back through the prophecies, the kings and the chronicles, it's still prophecy, guys. It might look like history, it's prophecy. If you go back and you see, he's not going to allow this to happen. Everything we're scared of with the beast, it's not going to be allowed to happen. He's going to stop it at a certain point. He will destroy commercial shipping. And like I say, it only takes a fraction to destroy the economy of the world. He's going to destroy an entire third of commercial, not just shipping, but transport because of what the ship stands for in Scripture. Now, where were the ships going? Tarshish. Uh, it could represent the end of the known world, Spain. It could also represent some undetermined city in the Mediterranean. But the most important thing is it represented Gog, the southern Turkey area we've been talking about. Uh, Gog, Magog, where is the final battle going to come from? This is where Jonah was trying to flee to. He was trying to go to Tarshish. Where did the church run into problems? The early church. Where are all these letters written to? If you looked at that map and had you kept going, like if you'd taken the epistles, the letters, and put pins on where all these letters went, they're going up into the area that the rabbis identify as Gog. Something, a mystery of iniquity, entered into these churches early, the writers of the New Testament tell us. He says it's already at work. Something's being twisted. Something's going to twist you away from the feasts. Keep your feasts, O Judah. They did. They didn't see Yeshua, but they didn't violate that commandment. And therefore, as we circle back in repentance, as we're bringing forth the fruits of repentance because of Judah, we know where to go to. We know when to go. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. 
You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook and our YouTube channel.